Well, two stories, one true, one false. Sunday night, November 1st, game five of the World Series, bottom of the 11th, tie game, two to two, when my wife Misty comes out and says to me, Tim, I think I'm going into labor. I look at her, I look at the TV, I look back at her, and I say, Misty, that, that sounds great, but this is the World Series. So could we wait until the game's over and then go to the hospital? In which case, my, my wife looks at me and says, how could you even ask me that? Of course we would wait until the game ends to go to the hospital. <laughs> so the game ends, the, the Royals win the World Series, we go to the hospital. It's, in, it's intense, her labor pains um, growing very intense, very quickly. They rush us up to the hospital room. The nurses are working frantically. I could tell they're looking at me, wanting me to do something to comfort my wife, to do anything. And so I look at, at Missy, knowing the answer to this question, but ask it anyway. Missy, do you want me to come near to you? Do you want me to hold your hand? To which she, she says to me, of course. I want to share in the beautiful moment of this birth of our son together. A few more minutes pass, and I, this is clearly the most intense pain she's ever been in in her entire life. She is making sounds I've never heard anything make before in my entire life. She's screaming out loud and finally screams out for all to hear, praise God for the, child of, the miracle of childbirth. And a few minutes later, our son Abel was born into the world. Story one. Story two. It's Sunday, November 1st. Bottom of the 11th inning, tie game, World Series, 2-2, two to two, when my wife comes out into our living room and says, Tim, I think I'm going into labor. I look at her, I look at the TV, I look back at her, and I say, let's, let's call the doctor. And so we call the doctor, and the doctor was clearly doing the same thing I was doing, because <laughs> his advice was to wait an hour and time the contractions, and if in an hour they were still strong, to then come in. And so the, the contractions get stronger. We actually left after 45 minutes. But in those 45 minutes, the Royals won the World Series. We rush off to the hospital. We get to the hospital. They rush us up to the room. The nurses are working frantically. The labor is, is going fast. And I could tell they want me to go and comfort my wife. They want me to go and do anything to make her feel better. And so I look at my wife and I ask her the question, knowing what the answer is going to be. Misty, do you want me to be near you? Do you want me to, to hold your hand? To which she did not reply with an answer, but a look. <laughs> a look so vicious, it removed three years from my life. <laughs> and then she said, I don't want you to touch me. <laughs> All right, we're on the same page. Okay, I'll sit over here. A <laughs> few more minutes passed. She is in the most amount of pain I've ever seen her. She's making sounds I've never heard anything or anyone make in my entire life where she screams loud enough that everyone on that floor must have heard, I'm going to die. <laughs> and a few minutes later, my son Abel was born into the world. I think there's a picture. Story two. And we all know what really happened, right? <laughs> it's because every birth story is, is intense, it's chaotic, it's potentially painful, it's, it's dangerous. And with God's grace, God's protection, with excellent medical care, it's beautiful in the end. And so as reflecting, having just gone through this process and having dwelt in this text this morning, Matthew 1, the question occurred to me that, that God could have entered our world any way he wanted. 
But he chooses this way. I mean, think of it. He could have, he could have rode in on a golden chariot. He could have made a, a flock of unicorns and flown in on them. But he didn't. He's born like, like all of us are born. That chaotic, dangerous, intense reality. Which raises the question for me, why? Why would Jesus, in his choice to enter into our world, why would he come this way? It's easy for, I think, us in Christmas to become so familiar with it, we miss the absurdity of it. That God is born like all of us are born. And for those of you who have been in a labor room, it seems like the last way God would choose to enter into our world. Let me just encourage you, even if you're not a Christian and you don't buy into God became man or the virgin birth or any of that, to just suspend your, your judgment for a minute and just imagine, okay, Christianity is saying something very weird and very different here. So what, is, what exactly is, is God trying to communicate, if there is a God, through Jesus joining us in this way, the virgin birth? Why this way? If I had to put an answer to that question, and that's what we're going to unpack the rest of the morning, it would be... One, to show us our problem, what's wrong with us, and two, to show us what we need. That's why Jesus was born this way, to show us our problem, to show us what we need. So let's jump into Matthew, Matthew 1. That Jesus is born, not just like all of us are born, he's actually born into a, a very scandalous setting. He's born into apparent adultery. Right? That Mary is pregnant and her fiancé is not the father. Which means that it looks like Mary has, has cheated. And what's interesting to me is when you read verses 18 through 25, it, it wouldn't be a stretch to say there's a chance Mary didn't even tell Joseph. That that conversation never happened. That one day, Joseph just saw Mary and she couldn't hide her bump anymore. What would she tell Joseph? So the birth of, of Jesus isn't just an apparent adultery, but it also puts Joseph into a scandalous situation, right? We see that in verse 19 when we're told that Joseph in good conscience can no longer go and, and marry his fiance. I mean, imagine that. You're engaged to someone and they're pregnant and, and you're not the father. And if you're to marry this person now, you will be the one who raises that child and everyone will know it's not yours. Everyone will know it's not yours. And while many people in our culture today tend to dismiss people in the first century like they're naive or they didn't know where babies came from, Joseph clearly knew where babies came from, and this baby did not come from him. He knew that. So imagine that moment. I, I think it's easy for us to cute, this, make this moment cute and precious, but this, this, is, this is tragic. This is hard. There was a movie in the 1960s called The Gospel According to St. Matthew that um, depicted this moment, I think, in, in a hauntingly beautiful way. And look at the, the image of Joseph. The moment he, he just sees Mary is pregnant. At the agony, the frustration, the disappointment. That's the reality of where Christmas starts. It's more Jerry Springer than Hallmark Christmas movie. This is a devastating star. And only an intervention of God is going to keep this thing together, which is exactly what happens. God intervenes by sending a, an angel to Joseph. And this is what he wanted Joseph to understand, to hear, to listen. Here's what the angel says. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The angel starts by saying, Joseph, son of David. Son of David. It doesn't mean much to us in our day, but that was a title of royalty in that day, like president of the United States or, or king of England. That for the angel to address uh, Joseph in this way, to say Joseph, son of David, was to give him a title of royalty. But here's the problem. Joseph isn't a king. He's a poor carpenter from Nazareth. A poor community that the elites sneered at and looked down upon. That the son of David was supposed to be a line of kings God had promised in the Old Testament would reign into eternity. And yet they had fallen apart to such an extent that now Joseph, son of David, was poor in obscurity and forgotten. And so here the angel comes and gives him this royal title because of this baby whom the angel says to Joseph, call that baby Jesus. Which means God saves or God is salvation. And that becomes a primary theme through the entire gospel of Matthew. This word saves, that Jesus came to save. And, and in the, math, the gospel of Matthew, there's two primary ways we see this worked out. One way we, we love, right? One way we want to be saved and one way we hate, that we don't like. That in the early parts of the, the gospel of Matthew, the word save tends to refer to um, to healings or miraculous interventions by God. So it's used to the disciples when they're um, out at sea and a storm comes up. They're afraid they're going to drown. So they go down to Jesus and say, save us. It's used of a woman who had a medical condition for 12 years where she was bleeding incessantly. And she goes to Jesus and thinks that if she can just touch his clothes, she'll be saved. Right? That we all have moments like this, moments where we say, God, save us, intervene, enter, um, enter into our lives and save us from whatever it is that we face. And whether you're a Christian or not, don't, don't you hope or, or wish this to be true, that there is a God who, when he is present, will make everything right? Because we all have those moments, right? Every one of us, I bet, in this morning, walked into this church with something you wish God would just enter in and save you from, to change and, and redirect and send in a new direction. That's where the gospel of Matthew starts, and we like that. We want that. Of course, we also realize Jesus doesn't intervene like that anymore. Right? I mean, I'm not saying God doesn't heal, but, but God is not physically present going around healing the sick like he was in Jesus' day. Why not? It's because Jesus primarily didn't come to save us first from things outside of ourselves. He will do that in the end of the new creation, the new heavens and earth. There will be no disease, no tears, no death. Anymore, He started that work and that work will one day be finished. But that's not the primary reason Jesus came the first time. The primary reason he came the first time is for a reason we, we don't like. You shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus doesn't come primarily at Christmas to save me from things outside myself. He comes at Christmas to save me from me. To save you from you. That's your greatest problem at Christmas, this time of year. It's not your in-laws who are coming over. It's not uh, your co-workers. It's not your kids. It's you. And that's where the Christmas season starts. And there's lots of ways we can unpack that, what it means to, to sin. I realize it's a kind of sort of an ancient word, a religious word, but 
But, but think of it like this, that the way the third century theologian uh, Augustine put it, that we all love good things, but in the wrong order. We love things, but we love them in the wrong order, and that leads us into disaster. So we love, we love sex, which is a good thing, but we love it to such a degree that pornography enters into our life. And it, even though we know there's no love there, there's nothing good there, it traps us. We love money to such a degree that we're, we're not generous, even though we long to be. We love our reputation so much. What others think of us, that we're, we're unwilling to repent to others, whether it's a coworker, a friend, a spouse, or our kids. Even though when we know we've done wrong, we can't acknowledge it because we want to maintain a certain level of reputation. All good things, things we should care about and love, but in the wrong order. That is, as people, as humans, we are first called to, to love God first. And the problem with every one of us is we don't love God first. And instead are, are trapped by the empty promises and the seduction of lesser things that want us to put them first. And that's why even though you can work really hard at it, your, your marriage continues to struggle even though you long, it, long for it to thrive. It's why you can struggle with the same sin over and over and over again, look back on years having not been any different because you love the wrong things in the wrong place. That you're a hostage. Which is why Jesus came. And until you see that, you'll never get out. The most terrifying reality of that being that I'm a hostage by my own making. I'm holding myself hostage by loving the wrong things. Which is why Jesus came in, to be born like you, like me. To enter into our world just like us. When I was in college, I read a book called Blue Like Jazz that described the incarnation in, in a very powerful way. Some of you have probably heard this story before, but the story is of a Navy, a Navy SEAL team who stormed into a compound to liberate hostages. Hostages who had been, um, who had been kept, who were in the filth and dark, curled up in a corner of the room, terrified for their lives. And so the seals enter the room. And as they enter the room, they beg the hostages to follow them to freedom. But the hostages didn't move. They sat there on the, on the floor, terrified, unwilling to go, assuming that those who had just entered into the room were there to do them harm, just like all of their prison guards were. So the seals had no idea what to do. So one of them took off his helmet, took off his armor, stripped down, his army clothes and, and knelt down next to the prisoners in a way that no prisoner guard would ever do. And leaned in and whispered to them, will you follow us? And they did. The hostages followed them out. Do you see why Jesus had to enter the world the way he did? Why he stripped himself of his glory, his power, his, his, his righteousness, Right? Everything that he was, he, he gave it up to enter into our world as a baby. All this so he can stoop to you and to me. Self-made hostages to say to us, you don't have to stay here. Come with me. But that's where Christmas starts. Jesus came to save us from our sins, save us from ourselves. That is our greatest Problem, And as much as we want to name things outside of ourselves, and as bad or as evil, as, as terrifying as they can be, Christmas calls us to look within at the greatest problem we face, and that Jesus came to save you from it.
So that's, that's point one, our problem. Second, what, what we need. The angel ends what he says to Joseph by going back to where he started. So he starts with Joseph, son of David, referring to the fact that Joseph is in this line of kings. With the irony, of course, couldn't be clear. Joseph's in obscurity, he's in poverty, he's not a king. And so the angel then ends by quoting from the passage of Scripture that describes the moment when the house of David fell and was ruined. The passage that Andrew read for us earlier, Isaiah chapter 7. He quotes from that story to to remind Joseph both of the fall of the house of David and its future restoration. Isaiah 7, it's a fascinating story. Maybe when you you read it, it just kind of went over your head a little bit. But here's what happened. Isaiah 7 starts with a threat to the city of Jerusalem, where the, the throne of the house of David was. So the king in David's line, Ahaz, was in Jerusalem Um, At the beginning of Isaiah 7, and what was happening was two nations in the north were planning to come and attack Jerusalem and this king. And so he's terrified for his life, for his people's lives. So God says to Isaiah, go and and say something to the king. So Isaiah goes and he meets the king where the king's trying to secure the water supply for his people. And the war is coming. And Isaiah says to King Ahaz, you have one job to do. Nothing. Don't do anything. God is going to take care of all of this for you. Trust him. You don't have to do, you don't have to do a thing, but be, be trusting in God and have faith in him. And so, God even offers Ahaz a sign, right? Verse 10 in, in Isaiah 7. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as shale or as high as heaven. What God literally says there is, I will move heaven and earth to do whatever I can to prove myself to you that, that this is going to happen this way, that I'm going to protect you and you'll be fine. Asking me whatever. And Ahaz's response, he quotes scripture back at God, which is um, a good idea if you're doing it in good faith. It's not a good idea in this case. He says, Ahaz says back to God, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Which sounds like humility, and, and right, there's a verse that says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. But of course, that doesn't work here because God had just said to Ahaz, I want to give you a sign. Ask of me a sign. Which hints to us something's up, right? There's a reason Ahaz doesn't want a sign from God. It's because Ahaz has already figured out his plan without God. And what he's done is he's gone to the biggest superpower of that day, the nation of Assyria, And he's created an alliance with them so that they will protect him against those two nations. Exactly the thing God had told him not to do several times. And so Ahaz says, no, I don't need a sign, God. And God says, you know what, I I know what you've been up to and here's here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you a sign anyway. You get a sign anyway, Ahaz. And here is what God, through the prophet Isaiah, says to Ahaz is the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since that day Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria." Now, again, I know this is Old Testament stuff. It may be a little bit over your head, but two things are happening here. The Isaiah is saying to King Ahaz, in the time that it's going to take for a woman who's a virgin to get married, to have a baby, and for that baby to be a few years old, two things are going to happen. 
So in a matter of a few years, Ahaz, two things are going to happen first. Those two kings you feared, they're going to be deserted, destroyed, forgotten, because I'm going to take care of them like I said I was going to do. And that happens. And secondly, Ahaz, the king of Assyria, who you thought was worth trusting more than me, that king is going to turn on you and attack you and liberate or and, and conquer your land, and your throne will be gone. Jerusalem will be destroyed, and you, king of David, will no longer reign. And that's what happened. And through the rest of the Old Testament, even though there were kings of Israel, they were all puppet kings. Ahaz is the last king of Israel, the son of David, who actually reigns in God's city from God's throne. This is the moment where it all fell apart. Why, in Matthew 1, we have a son of David who's not a king but a carpenter. Not, not on a throne, but in Nazareth. So that, that leads to a question, though. What, who is this child Emmanuel? Because right, in, the, in the one sense, there's this immediate fulfillment where God says, these two things are going to happen, Ahaz, to, to Assyria, to you, to these two nations. But then this child Emmanuel clearly is some, someone else. And especially because Isaiah 7 doesn't stop Isaiah's words about Emmanuel. They continue on into Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 9. And it becomes clear this child is someone else. A king of David who will be born in poverty and in obscurity, but will come to reign on his throne. In the climax of Isaiah 9, this child Emmanuel, is verses 6 and 7 where we read this of who Emmanuel will be. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, God, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his governments and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his, his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's the end of the prophecy of Emmanuel. And it meant that God's people were always waiting for this son of David to be born, to come up. And here in Matthew 1, what the angel is saying to Joseph is, Mary's child is that son. He's here. And as you read Isaiah 9, I don't want us to miss what is yet again at the front and center of the Bible storyline, which is that God's heart isn't just for this local place in Nazareth, the middle of nowhere, but God's heart is for all of the world, for all people. Right, that Jesus is not a personal savior. He is a king with a kingdom who is invading in this world. And, and soon, and at one point when he returns, all of this world will be his kingdom. And maybe if you're, you're not a Christian, that sounds troubling, right? It sounds like colonialism or, or like, um, like one nation or one class or one race ruling over all. That's not what's going on in Isaiah 9. Rather, we see in the rest, uh, both in Isaiah and in the rest of, of the book of Matthew, Jesus' kingdom is for all people and it's led by all people. Right Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. There's not going to be a corner of this world where Jesus does not reign and he does not have people from which you worship him. And so that, that's one reason why, as we've thought about our work in the world as a church, we want to, as much as possible, support um, indigenous leadership. Right? We want to support Christian leaders um, or Chinese leaders in China. We want to support um, uh, uh, Turkish leaders in Turkey, African leaders in Africa, because we believe Jesus' kingdom is not just one group of people. Right? It's the whole world over which Jesus will reign. 
And so our primary partnership here at Shawnee is, is the China partnership. And I hope you'll get to meet Enoch at one point, who leads, the Chinese Christian who leads um, the China partnership, who leads it with humility and grace. He's a man of prayer and great faith. Right? And God has placed him there, as God is doing all over this world, raising up leaders to bless and to serve and to expand his church and his kingdom. And so we want to support that work all over the world because we believe God has come to be with us, with all of us. Emmanuel, God with us. But at this point, it's, it's worth at least pushing back. Probably most of us have the assumption that, that God should come among us. Right? That if, if God would want to spend time with anyone, it'd probably be me. Right? Why wouldn't he want to spend time with me? Why wouldn't God come among us? And it's important for us, at least at this moment, to, to notice the difference here between Christianity and other religions. That in other religions, the reality of, of God coming near to you means you have to, get all, you have to do all you can. You have to clean up your act. You have to keep the rules well enough. You have to do the list. Right? And if you do everything you can, you can meet with God. In Christianity, that, that script is, is completely flipped. God has done everything he can to get near to us, to get near to you. Absurd things like being born into this world. That God has done everything he can to get near to us. And so it raises the question for all of us this morning, do you really want God to come near to you? I mean, it sounds nice, but I mean, really, do you want God to come and live alongside of you day to day? Because if he does, he's going to meddle with your life. I imagine if God showed up and said, let's spend the day together, the first thing he's probably going to want to do with a lot of us is say, let's, let's sit down, let's take a look at your bank statement. Let's talk about where you're spending your money. I want to speak, I want to speak into that a little bit. I mean, how many of us really want God to do that? Or imagine he... He wants to sit down with you and talk to you about, about your work ethic, either your overwork or your underwork. So I want, I want to talk to you about how much you love your work and what kind of effort you're putting in. Or imagine God says, you know, I want, to, I want to talk to you about your anger, what you said the other day. Right? I mean, how many of us really want God to come in and meddle in our lives? Which is why when Jesus showed up, he was constantly offending people. They were mad at him. They didn't really want him near. Right? Because Jesus, when he came to save, he came to save me from me, from myself. And if God is going to come and dwell among us, he is going to have some work to do. But C.S. Lewis put this best in Mere Christianity. Listen to this image. And imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on the earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Emmanuel. God with us. And he will not be satisfied with the lives you and I build for ourselves, where we love things in the wrong order. He will not live in that house. He intends a palace. He will not settle for a cottage. So let me, let me just press into that question this morning. Do you, do you really want God with us? Are you really ready for God to come in and, listen, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, to actually come in and invade every part of your life? To go into the rooms you, you, you did not invite him into. 
to point out the things in your house you're able to, to cover from other people, right? You all, we all do this, right? People come over, we, we throw stuff in a closet, right? Jesus is going to go right to that closet and open it. Are you ready? Do you want God near you? And I realize that that's a threatening question, right? At least you should feel that as a threatening question. I think that's why Matthew 1 gives me such hope. Because Jesus, even though he is that meddling, intimidating presence, he's also just like me. He has a name and a face. He's born into this world, born into scandal. People called his mother names because of his origins. People questioned who his father was. He was mocked for that throughout his life. He's just like us. And nothing like us. That's why, that's why Christians have always held to the, the virgin birth. Right? Not because we think sex is bad and, and you know, if you're born of sex, that is a bad thing. Or, or not because we like fairy tales. But listen, if I'm going to be saved from myself, I don't need another human being. I need a God who can actually pull me out of myself. Pull me out of the self-made hostage. And no human being born of, a, of an earthly father is going to be able to do that for me. None of us can, no one of us can do that for each other. We need someone whose father is not Joseph, but is who, whose father is God. And so Jesus is a human being, everything like us. He's the son of David, the king come to reign on the, that throne of the house of David. But he is nothing like us, born of a virgin. The father of God, the true king, Emmanuel, God with us, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That is who Jesus is. Is. And so when he says to us, come with me, you don't have to stay here. He actually can save us. He actually can pull us out of whatever it is that weighs us down or discourages us. His birth reveals that. Entering into the scandal of this world and his death reveals that. Going to a cross, facing the scandal of a cross, being nailed there. Because his name is Jesus and he shall save his people from their sins. Let's pray.